the Bain Free Radio Hour. This time on the podcast, David Drake takes a road of danger to the heretic and beyond. Charles E. Gannon dollops out the action. Bain books get into leather. Award nominations fly. And part four of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. All right now. Hello and welcome. I'm Bain editor Tony Daniel. Today we have an interview with military science fiction writer and Bane legend David Drake. Really looking forward to that. Also this time, a writing suggestion from Charles E. Gannon, the author of a new science fiction novel out this month from Bane. It's called Fire with Fire. And we continue with our groundbreaking complete serialization of David Weber's latest Honor Harrington novel, Shadow of Freedom, provided by Audible.com. First, though, some news. Hey, the Bain April titles are at your favorite booksellers now. These include all-new general series entry, The Heretic. We'll talk with Dave Drake about that soon. Also in April, Fire with Fire, a new science fiction novel from Charles E. Gannon. This is hot, idea-driven, action-packed stuff. And we have our leather-bound reissue of On Basilisk Station, the very first Honor Harrington novel. What a handsome thing this is. Laura Haywood Corey, can you describe this book? I notice you are caressing one in your hands right now. Yes, I am. It's the uh, special hardcover 20th anniversary edition of On Basilisk Station in dark blue leather with gold lettering. What kind of cow has dark blue leather? <laughs> A blue one. Ah. It has... Uh, Blue in papers. It's got cover inserts of the original Honor Harrington on Basilisk Station cover and the later edition David Mattingly on Basilisk Station cover. And it will be a beautiful addition to any David Weber Honor Harrington fans bookshelf. All of these great Bain books, including our April Mass Markets, uh, which include Dave Freer's Great Fantasy Dog and Dragon, Eric Flint, Paula Goodlett, and Gorg Huff's Excellent Ring of Fire Alternate History Entry, 1636 The Kremlin Games, which is one of my favorites uh, of that series, and science fiction legend A. Bertram Chandler's Galactic Courier, which includes a big chunk of his John Grimes series. These are now available this month as well wanted to pass along some other news. Three of the short stories in the Bain anthology, Going Interstellar, have been nominated for the prestigious and nicely remunerative Lifeboat to the Stars Award. This is a science fiction award to the story or novel that best contributes to an understanding of the benefits, means, and difficulties of interstellar travel. So three of the five finalists were right out of Going Interstellar. We are right proud of that. Going Interstellar was edited by NASA scientist and Bain author Les Johnson and award-winning author Jack McDevitt. Also wanted to mention that Bain author Lois McMaster-Bujold is a Hugo finalist this year for her Captain Vorpatrol's Alliance. And that will be out soon in trade paperback, by the way. And my boss, Tony Weiskopf, is also a Hugo finalist for Best Professional Editor. And the Rees and Laurels Keep Coming, Sarah A. Hoyt is a finalist for the Prometheus Award for her novel A Few Good Men, which was just out. And this is an award she's already won, by the way, for, uh, I believe it's Starship Thieves. And finally, Bain author Catherine Asaro is up for a nebula for her novelette, The Pyre of New Day. Go to Bain.com for more information, and while you're there, read the great free fiction, the cutting-edge nonfiction. And hey, take part in our mighty Manly Men of Bane cover contest. Have you voted in the poll yet, Laura? I have. I'm a sucker for musicians, so I had to go with number eight. Oh, my gosh. You went, for the, you went for the flute player, didn't you? <laughs> that is the little wimpy guy with the, I with like the goatee. I like musicians. Oh, okay, all right. <laughs> it's a choice. 
It is. One can make. <laughs> All of this and more at Bane.com. Bane Books, the heart of science fiction and fantasy. It beats like a hammer, that heart. David Drake graciously sat down with us in the Bane studio and provided so much good stuff for the podcast, we're going to need more than one pod to get it in. So we're going to divide our David Drake interview into two parts. Here is part one. All right, with me today is Bane editor Jim Menz. Hi, Jim. Hey, everyone. Bane editor emeritus Hank Davis. Hello, Hank. Yo. I'm Bane editor Tony Daniel, and with us in the studio today is Bane author extraordinaire David Drake. Hi, Dave. I don't feel very extraordinary. Oh, well, we'll try to make you feel better. Or I don't think we'll succeed, will we? <laughs> All right, David Drake has the very unusual distinction of being a, both a writer's writer, that is a writer other writers read for pleasure and learn from, or attempt to learn from, and a reader's writer, somebody who turns out books for the rest of us. It's hard to pull off both, and he does. How does he do it? We'll ask him. But first, a bit of background. Dave is probably best known for his military science fiction, but there's a mountain of Drake work out there. His Hammer Slammer series about an interstellar mercenary tank company, I think they're about company size. Uh, uh, regiment. Regiment. Remains extremely popular. And his Republic of Cinnabar series, starring continuing characters Daniel Leary and Adele Mundy, is an ongoing success with over a million copies sold. In fact, Dave's books have sold over 5 million copies over Dave's long and storied career. <laughs> the there's latest, a there's a lot of stories, yeah. and we'll try to drag some out. The latest RCN entry, The Road of Danger, is just out in paperback. Dave, you're known for drawing story ideas from the ancient world, particularly from primary historians of Rome and Greece. With the Alliance and the Republic at nominal peace in the storyline of the RCN books, where did you find the drama for this latest Leary and Mundy adventure? Uh, well, this one came from Livy, actually. And uh, a really a very minor little footnote in Livy. And, uh, Roman historian of the uh, around the time of Christ. And I just I read the, the little description, and I thought of what it would probably mean have meant to the people who were actually there, and um, then I ran with it and just, you know, started playing with, well, now that's interesting, and what does that actually mean? And thinking about the, the background and such in the time, because all of this stuff, it's in context, uh, and if you know the context, then just a, a passing reference uh, really means a lot more. I, you know, it, it's just it's a hook for a story. Well, what was the what was the context of the? It was Rome and Carthage, right? That was the. Uh, yeah, but actually, the the end, you know, after Rome had won the Second Punic War, you know, cripplingly defeated Carthage, drove Hannibal out of. Well, drove him out of Italy. Uh, defeated him in front of the gates of Carthage and forced a peace on Carthage, it was a really brutal peace, when the, um, the Carthaginian Senate began, someone got up and began debating how, how unfair the terms were and they should refuse them. Hannibal got up on the podium, dragged the fellow off, threw him down, and said, I don't know anything about parliamentary procedure, but I know about war. Take any terms you're offered. We've lost. Uh, I, I, you know, that that's the sort... Now, mind you, that isn't precisely what I, I hung the thing on, but that's the background to it. The background is that a Roman um, colony was overrun by a rebellion of Gauls, Celts in northern Italy, and they were being led by a man who claimed to be a Carthaginian. Now, he may have been, he may not have been. Uh, he may have been a deserter, he may have, uh, you know, simply been abandoned in the general defeat of the Carthaginian armies in Italy, but uh, he was causing 
really huge disruption in the northern end of what was then Rome's empire. And so the Romans demanded that the Carthaginians remove their envoy, or, you know, remove the, uh, the leader of the revolt. Well, quite obviously, nobody in Carthage had a clue as to what was going on, let alone any power over someone, you know, hundreds of miles away across the Mediterranean. But they had to send people to try and get the Carthaginian back. Uh, and that's an interesting situation. I mean, think of those poor bastards being, you know, shipped off to Italy. And, you know, this is obviously completely absurd, but they had no choice. I mean, Hannibal had been right. They had no choice. Well, would you put the, uh, I'm, obviously you don't want to make exact parallels between, but, but it seems to me that that would put the, uh, the RCN in the position, or the, or the Royal Cinnabar. I'm Royal, I'm sorry. Too much Weber on my brain. <laughs> yeah. The Republic Mine of Cinnabar. Is a Republic. Damn of it, it course. Hasn't... Yes. <laughs> uh, that would put them in the position of the Carthaginians, but they've, they've fought the alliance to a stalemate in the books, have they not? Or oh, correct. Least, yeah. yeah. Uh, this, this is, this is not a precise one-on-one -on -one thing. As I say, this is the germ. Uh, you could have the same situation, though, with a fragile peace and a rebellion going on, on um, in, in, in one of the enemy's worlds being supposedly led by one of your own people. And... You aren't sure. Maybe it is one of your own people. Maybe there is some sort of a rogue intelligence operation going on. And what you do know is that if something isn't done, and by something, if the other power isn't mollified, then war is likely to break out again, and that will be a disaster. Well, it's all fine and dandy. This is Jim Minns talking. Uh, it's all fine and dandy to talk about the big, broad sweeps of history here, but let's remember at the core of the story, of course, is one of the great duos of science fiction, a great team, Leary and Monday. And so uh, what were some of the inspirations for that character? Who are some of your favorite buddies? Oh, <laughs> actually, my first... Um, my the The real genesis of my first series... <laughs> which was back in 19, jeez, 1967, long, long time ago, uh, was uh, a duo of Captain Jat and his cabin boy Tibby <laughs> in a very short series by William Pope Hodgson. Two very good stories, and that really grabbed me. But Leary and Mundy are directly based on... Um, the, the interplay of two characters gives you something very different from a single character. Uh, not, not better, not worse, just very different. And I've, I've certainly done a lot of single character stuff, but uh, Jim Bain, who was one of my closest friends, uh, was a huge fan of the Aubrey Matteron series by Patrick O'Brien. And um, he kept trying to get me to read the books. And he kept talking about, you know, how, how really great they were. And I, Jim and I were really close friends. And his taste was generally very good. But he would usually manage to to put things in a fashion that even if it was something I would really like as the Buffy series, telling me that you'll love this. It's about this cute young blonde who really kicks monster butt. <laughs> and well, I, this is and this is actually true, but it wasn't the way to make me watch the Buffy series. And when I did, I thought, well, this is great. Um, and but I finally did read um, one of Patrick O'Brien's books, and at that point realized I already had the first in the series on my shelf, bought for 25 cents, first edition hardcover with dust jacket, uh, bought for 25 cents. It was a pretty battered copy, but still. So that was Master and Commander? Or yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Uh, and I'd picked it up at a yard sale and never gotten around to reading it, so I, I then read that uh, after I'd read Far Side of the World. Uh, and these are wonderful. I mean, the, these it failed initially in the U.S. because it was being it was intended and was marketed as uh, a hornblower knockoff, and they were just too good. Uh, and I'm not saying anything against Hornblower. Uh, Jim well, and I both. Very different sorts of things. One is a thriller writing sort of thing, and these are character-driven novels. Uh, yeah. Uh, basically, he's a literary writer, and he was trying to do action. Uh, and if you read Master and Commander, it's quite obvious. he It was written as a single shot. It, it must have been. Um, Tone, everything really changes in later books, uh, which which is interesting. But, you know, I, I read the series, and they were wonderful, and while I was reading them, I got to thinking. And I called Jim, and I said, Hey, look, um, there have been lots and lots of hornblower knockoffs in science fiction as well as, you know, in, in historical fiction. But... I don't recall there being a Patrick O'Brien knockoff in science fiction, do you? And he couldn't think of one either. And I said, well, how about I write one? And he thought that was a great idea. And that was sort of how Jim and I worked. One of us would get a bright idea and talk to the other, and I'd wind up writing it, and he'd wind up publishing it. And, you know, that that was pretty good life. <laughs> and everybody made money. Yes, yes. Well, that isn't entirely true. We, we both had some really bad ideas, <laughs> but but we had fun. Well, what is uh, so? What's next in the RCN series? Are we uh, moving onward? Uh, <laughs> Unless I die. Uh, actually, I knocked off at one thirty today. Halfway through the uh, the next book in the series. Um, the Sea Without a Shore. And I just, Adele Mundy has just killed the first person in this book. Uh, probably won't be the last. But, you know, right at the start of the firefight is the body bounces off the, the back of the APC and falls forward. Uh, Tetanic convulsions. Um, I quit and came over here to talk to y'all instead of doing what I ought to be doing, which is working. Yeah. So in some parallel universe, there's a body in it has, it hasn't hit the ground yet. <laughs> yeah, it's in the freeze frame. Yeah. <laughs> well, Mon Monday is certainly uh, no Maturin, that's for sure. She kills with... Oh, <laughs> uh, well, that's very much Maturin also, if you look at it. Oh, yeah? The... Uh, uh, doc you know, right. yeah. I mean that that is very much the uh, the the situation where uh, he's. It's actually set in Australia, and he's being baited by an officer uh, in front of the club, and uh, he draws his sword, bashes the other fellow's guard aside, and smashes his face in with the guard. Uh, just bing. Uh, Marvelous, marvelous action writer. You you don't think of the Aubrey Matteron series as being action writing, but when they are, they are superbly. Uh, might I say that the same is true of H.G. Wells, who does not often, you know, again, he isn't thought of as an action writer, uh, but the opening paragraph of Pollock and the Pora Man for example, and that's that's one example of many, are about as good a job of setting up action. The setup is careful, and then blam, in a line or two lines, the uh, Pollock's mistress is dead. Her husband has stabbed her. Pollock has fired twice at the husband, and mist knocking chunks out of the mud hut, and the husband's counterstroke has also missed. And it's completely 
you're given the setup, you're given the description of the setting, and it's all you're reading along, and this is this is descriptive, this is descriptive, blam! And um, uh, both Wells and O'Brien are models of action writing. Um, and I, I say that as someone who has, you know, done a fair amount of action writing himself. Well, that's pretty high praise for H.G. Wells' action writing. Let me change tracks for a second. I want to mention another Drake series that has recently been invigorated with a new entry, and that is the General or Raj Whitehall series. A new entry in the General series is just out this month, and that is The Heretic. Now, I, Tony Daniel, am the co-author on The Heretic with Dave, which I'm very proud of. All I know is that I was presented with this magnificent outline for a novel by uh, Tony Weisskopf, who's the Bain publisher, and and by magnificent, I mean detailed, comprehensive, useful, complete. Uh, anything that I changed in it, I later regretted. Um, but what I didn't... I've had other authors tell me that, yes. by the way. But what I didn't and don't know is how the outline came to be. Can you fill us in on the origins of The Heretic and how it uh, fits into the general series? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, as I say, Jim Bain and I were friends. And he got to reading. He, he read voraciously and that he would bounce things off me. And he got to reading Little Hearts, um, a, a, a British uh, military historian and theoretician uh, who in the, the interwar period... It's Little? That's how you pronounce L-I-D-D-L, it? L-I-D-D-L. E-L. Yeah, Little. Mm-hmm. Uh, as in uh, Little and Scott the Greek lexicon, and this is actually significant, that is, the Greek lexicon, because Alice Little, uh, Professor Little's daughter, is the Alice of Alice in Wonderland, whom uh, his fellow Oxford don, uh, Charles Lutwidge Dodgson, wanted to marry when she uh, reached 14 and marriageable age. Uh, Professor Little did not approve of the marriage, uh, which I'm rather glad to say. But, but yes, little. Uh, <laughs> okay, that's a digression. <laughs> sure. Um, but he wild and crazy Victorians. <laughs> yes, well, out of control. He he was certainly crazy. Uh, fine photographer too. But Little Heart was a big exponent of the strategy of indirection, the, the indirect approach. You don't attack the enemy uh, at his strong points. You move into a position across the enemy's line of communications, for example, and force him to attack you. Um, the, this is a natural sort of way for somebody who came through World War I to, to feel. It isn't very practical, but he was... A, it, it makes perfect sense. It doesn't work in the real world, but it makes perfect sense. And Jim became very enamored of it and asked me, uh, Little Heart had used Belisarius. He actually wrote a biography of uh, Bella, the Byzantine general Belisarius. And Jim asked me if I could uh, write a series of books based on the life of Belisarius to demonstrate. Jim was big on educating his readers, so long as the story came first, but it wasn't just story with him, or with me, actually, come to think, although we usually had different foci. But um, I said, well, I've preceded Procopius, uh, Procopius, the, the historian Procopius was actually secretary, uh, to Belisarius and then wrote up the Belisarius campaigns in a series of books. I had preceded them in the past as background for, for my first novel, actually, The Dragon Lord. And, uh, said, so, oh, yeah, I suppose I can do that again. And so I did and did uh, four novel outlines based on, uh, each was based on one book of the, uh, 
the books of the wars, uh, Procopius, uh, you know, Persian War, the Gothic War, the Vandalic War. Don't remember. I, I think the Gothic War was in two, um, but it actually wound up uh, when Steve Sterling, uh, Jim then hired Steve Sterling to develop these outlines into the general series. And uh, I moved the timing. That's my idea. I mean, Jim didn't care. He just wanted it. He wanted it done. He didn't much care how I did it. I moved the timing into uh, the equivalent of late 19th century technologies. Then wrote the four outlines. Uh, Steve developed them. Uh, <laughs> two things happened. <laughs> when the, the third book was already scheduled, The Gothic War. And he was one, running way long, and they had, they, meaning y'all, Bain Books, because it was running late as well as long, had uh, already cut the covers. Uh, it was mass market paperback, and there's just, you know, limited slop. So I said, oh, just break it at, you know, gave a, a location to break it at. So Steve... <laughs> wrote a you know the end and and then did the the last half of that outline as uh, as a separate book so the original general series had five books instead of the four that I'd plotted uh this people this is how publishing really works uh, <laughs> and well jim really really liked the series and then he said to me you know, can we uh, can we show this sort of thing happening on you know use other situations um, and have the same sort of thing go on? And that became I said, man, ah, sure, uh, <laughs> we're friends. Uh, I, I might add, all the outlines I've done, all of them, have been somebody else's idea. It's never been my idea to either do outlines or to collaborate uh, with another author. Not once. Uh, I have difficulty saying no. Uh, and the results have generally been quite good. Um, but I, uh, I did four plots. Uh, one was Roman uh, basis. Um, Got one. One was deliberately playing off Steve Sterling's uh, Draca series. But these were not Procopius Praises. These were uh, no. These no, were something no, else. These, these, could... Yeah, they were. They were based on other things. Well, well, where'd you get the heretic from? That's what I want to know. Well, it's Egypt. <laughs> For Obvious. peace' sake, it's Egypt. Yeah, it's Egypt. Uh, all right, I, all right. I, I but, don't know if there's any in, particular historic. Well, there kind of was actually um, the. Um, not the Sea Peoples, but the Hyksos. Uh, you know, the Hyksos. Um, the guys that took over the Delta area. Uh, yeah, and, and to a much greater degree than Egyptian sources indicate. Uh, and it, they appear to have been the Canaanites. Um, but, uh, yeah, that was a much longer thing. They had a, a huge capital. They left records for... You know, it, the Egyptian records make it look as though it was just a very brief thing. It wasn't. Uh, well, it seems like they kind of took over the uh, aristocracy and then pretended like they had been there all along. Yeah, very, very much, very much as the Mongols did in China, of course. Yeah. So that was that was the basis there. Well, thank you, Dave, for being with us today, and. Thanks to Jim Menz and Hank Davis and for Laura Haywood Corey for uh, stepping in with essential information. And being beautiful. Absolutely. Uh, David Drake's latest RCN novel, The Road of Danger, is available in paperback and, of course, still in hardcover and ebook form at uh, bainebooks.com. His excellent collection, Night and Demons, is out in trade paperback. And a new entry in the general series, The Heretic by Tony Daniel and Dave Drake 
uh, is out just now in hardcover and ebook as well. We like to ask Bain writers for a weekly writing suggestion for our listeners. Now, this can be whatever you want, but it's usually a seed crystal for a developing writer to take and shape into a piece of work. The result could be a paragraph or two, a short story, or heck, even a novel. The caveat is it should be doable in a week. Anyway, listeners can post their work and discuss on the podcast forum in the Baines Bar. The link is on the podcast page. Today we welcome Bain author Charles E. Gannon to the podcast. Hi, Chuck. Hi, Tony. How are you doing? Glad to be here. Pretty good. Chuck Gannon is the author of new science fiction novel Fire with Fire. In Fire with Fire, a defense analyst travels to a newly settled world and investigates whether a primitive local species was once sentient, enough to have built a lost civilization. Chuck is also the co-author of several other Bane books and many stories in the anthologies. You'll recognize his name. These include Starfire series entry Extremis, written with Steve White, and best-selling Ring of Fire series alternate history novel 1635 The Papal Stakes, co-authored with Eric Flint. So Chuck, can you give us a writing suggestion for the coming week? Well, I can try. Um, and um, and before I do, I actually want to say how much I really like this idea of what you're doing with this. I think it really exemplifies the pay it forward of the science fiction field in general. But one of the things I've liked about Bain, and since you just spoke about some of the collaborations I've done, this notion that Bain helps people who want to write rather than making it sort of a closed circle or a hard-to-enter club. And I, I really think that's part of the Bain ethos, and it makes me not just happy but proud to be here and to be invited to be here. Uh, so what have you got for us today, then? Okay, so what I'm going to talk about today regarding writing action is uh, is three levels that you can approach it, because um, I know this is something that you, you folks are thinking about doing um, and actually uh, using in the course of perhaps a, a week and, and then showing it on the podcast. So we're going to we're going to tackle it in, uh, in in I guess you could say segmented steps: the macro level, the mid level, and a, and a kind of micro level. Okay, so we're going to be breaking this down into three parts. Um, and before I get going on this, there's a caveat: every rule not only can but should be broken at one point or another. However, I'd say, but there's a caveat to the caveat. The bigger the rule, the more essential there should be a big reason to break it. So with, that all, with all that in place, and therefore with none of these rules really being absolute rules, um, let's get going. Um, the macro structure that I'd like to talk about is that you, when it comes to writing action, you want to think about what it is and what you want to achieve with action. What you really want to achieve, obviously, is excitement. Excitement to the point, arguably, that the reader doesn't even... Uh, maintain awareness that they're reading. They've sort of become, become lost in the book. They've, if you will, fallen through the world, words into the world. So, um, think, think pace. And when you think of pace, you gotta think about beat. And actually that is coming right out of the heartbeat. One of the reasons why fast pace and music and other things work, work on us is because since the time we're born and before, we sort of have that metronome going inside of us. We, and we know we associate that fast increased pace with excitement or danger or fear or all of those kinds of emotions. So turning that into something we can use for writing, I'm not going to suggest we use music predominantly. I'm going to suggest something that I think is a lot more akin to writing, which is film. I want you to think about film. Now as you go to action, you might say more broadly, things get faster in a film. Now what is getting faster, what is making it go quickly. It's not just the music. It's actually the chunk, the size of each chunk of information that you're getting is actually getting smaller, and the changes between them are coming more rapidly. So you might say that, that you've got more cuts, more shots being, being essentially generated in the same period of time. Now, now the, the music and everything else may be going along with that, but all of that is working to a single end, which is to generate the pace that we associate with. It's a cue for us that means excitement. So how do we do that in terms of writing? Well, first thing, let's take a look at, like I said, macro level. Let's talk about paragraphs here and, and to some extent sentences. The paragraph should, should be shorter. Remember what a paragraph is. A paragraph is a fully developed idea. 
Well, if you think about yourself in a combat situation, this is probably not the time that you're going to, you know, uh, uh, contemplate the, the greater works of Kafka. This is a time when, it, you know, it's going to be extremely object intensive. You've got, you've got a problem, you solve it. You've got another problem, you solve it. You have an action you have to undertake, you succeed or you don't. Things have very short fuses, if you will, very short, uh, very short, uh, lifespans, if you will, or shelf lives. So, um, the, that, shows up in shorter paragraphs. Literally, if you look at, at, a, at, a, at a page, if you've got a fair amount of, of shifting of action, you may actually see more paragraphs and shorter paragraphs. That's a trend. It's not, that's not a, a thing to try to achieve. But if you're still in that phase in the action where you're coordinating, let's say, the action of a bunch of different people, if it's third person, um, this is one of the things you might be, you might be watching for. Um, so that's one of the things. You can think of paragraph changing a lot like cross-cutting in a film, where you're particularly when you're moving between different characters on different places. And uh, instead of sort of long, discursive segments where you get to hear dialogue and whatnot, you're really just seeing a couple of, you know, a couple of fast shots and a couple of words. That's pretty much what you're getting. So um, an- another way you can also uh, be picking up the pace in your action sequence is single clause declarative sentences move away from longer constructions again this is a tendency it's not a hard and fast rule but certainly when you're coming right down to climax moments or when um, if you will a set of actions are about to reach their payoff moment that is when you probably really want the um, the the sentences short and sharp that that gives them maximum impact and think of a period in essence like a, uh, a shot marker where a shot ends. The closer those periods are coming together, the more a sense of, of increasing pace you're getting, just like in a film. Um, same thing with dialogue. Uh, by the time you get into, into a, a moment in your, in your work, whether it's a short story or novel, whatever it may be, where you're worried about these sort of pacing issues, action, uh, you know, portraying action this way, dialogue should be very short, if present at all. And um, you should all. And, and one of the things also is that we should know what the subject of a sentence is very quickly. So don't bury the subject in the sentence. If you think about again cinema, when you get into the action phase, you don't have any sort of long shots where you pan across something and you discover what the actual focal point of the shot is. No, you're right there right away. You have to know because that object is going to be in action immediately. So uh, no long vistas, no long dialogues. Now, some, some other tricks that are perhaps a little less obvious are parallel constructions. They're a great way to save time and to create pulses. What I mean by that is, is for instance, think about um, this as a parallel construction where we're, we've got one subject and then we, we follow it with a bunch of uh, absolutely similarly constructed subclauses. So, so think about um, parallel constructions, and I'll give you an example. He drew the gun, opened the door, ducked into the room. Now, some people would even want to put an and at the, at the, before that last subclause, and ducked into the room. My feeling is, if I'm actually getting you, the reader, to be with me, I don't even want to use that and there, because I want you to stay visual. If you will, and you can debate on this, some people will say, well, go with what's grammatically correct, put the and in. You can do that, but that's one of those rules that you might want to break. If what you if you've established with this parallel construction that it's sort of action 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 all coming from that from that same 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 subject he um, you may not need those connectors and it just it what it does is it keeps the flow moving without those sort of little formal breaks that are not necessarily essential for us to understand what's going on in that sentence um, now. All of this being said, don't become a parody of yourself. This is what Hemingway does at his worst. He, he certainly is, is pretty impressive when it comes to writing sparse language but, uh, and sparse structures, but he can, he can, uh, can overdo it a little bit. Um, so because I've never been known for being extremely brief when I speak, it looks like we're going to have to do a second one of these where I'm going to talk about the micro level where we get down into the nitty-gritty of, of how do we achieve these things inside the sentence with word choice and economy and also making sure you're not becoming a parody of yourself. I look forward to talking to you then. 
Well, excellent. Thank you. Thank you, Chuck. Should we call this the, uh, the macro, micro exercise or something? Uh, I, I, I just thought of, uh, three steps, three steps for writing action. Three steps for writing action. All right. That's what we'll call it. Uh, so you writers out there, get your butt to chair bottom, hands to keyboard or voice to voice recognition mic, however you do it and write well, write for the stars. Uh, Charles E. Gannon's new novel is Fire with Fire. It's available at booksellers everywhere and as an ebook at bainebooks.com. We'll be talking with Chuck soon on an upcoming podcast about that and many other things, so get ready for that. Thanks so much for being with us today, Chuck. It's been a pleasure being here. I look forward to talking to you all again real soon. And now we continue with our most excellent audiobook serialization of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. This portion of Shadow of Freedom is provided by Audible.com. Get the complete audiobook at Audible.com now. If you are not a subscriber, you can get the entire audiobook free or choose from more than 100,000 other titles when you try Audible free for 30 days. I've been an Audible subscriber for years. I highly recommend the service. Okay, here's what has gone before. In the first part of Shadow of Freedom, we open on Halkirk, a planet in the Loomis system under the thumb of the autocratic Salarian League. Things don't look good for the party of local partisans who oppose the local dictators and Salarian occupation of the system. This group, the Loomis Liberation League, has become a force for rebellion. Yet the Solarian League forces, led by Office of Frontier Security Officer Frankello Osborne, are not happy campers either. They dislike dealing with the local leaders they must prop up, whom they consider particularly bloodthirsty and murderous. An isolated group of Loomis Liberation League rebels, the Provos, fight a last-ditch effort as Solarian enforcers blow up half a city to get to them. The Provos cling to a forlorn hope. It seems that an arms dealer who had previously supplied them with weaponry, also hinted that he was much more than a mere dealer. In fact, he claimed to have ties to a certain star kingdom that might be willing to provide not merely arms, but naval support from the sky. Here is part four of David Weber's Shadow of Freedom. March 1922, Post-Diaspora Trust me? The hole would have been a hell of a lot deeper. Ensign Helen Zilwicky, Royal Manticoran Navy. Chapter 3 Just a second, Gwen, Captain Loretta Shoup said as she followed Lieutenant Gervais Winton Irwin Neville Archer out of Admiral Augustus Kumalo's office space aboard HMS Hercules. Gervais had just finished delivering a late-hour briefing to Kumalo and Shoup, his chief of staff, There'd been a lot of those briefings over the last three weeks, and it didn't look like getting better any time soon. The entire spindle system was still somewhere between astonishment and euphoria over the devastating defeat Admiral Goldpeak's 10th Fleet had inflicted on the Solarian League Navy, but the Navy remained too busy to celebrate as it scrambled frantically to deal with the enormous flood of POWs it had so suddenly and unexpectedly acquired. Despite which, or perhaps because of which, given the exhaustion quotient of her crew, the ancient super-dreadnought flagship of the recently created Talbot Station was quiet around them. Yes, ma'am? Gervais replied, turning to face her. You know Ensign Zilwicky pretty well, don't you, Gwen? Shoop's tone made the question a statement, Gervais thought, and wondered where she was headed. Yes, ma'am, he said again despite the monumental rank disparity between a mere ensign and a senior-grade lieutenant, he'd come to know young Zilwicky, Sir Ivar's Tarakov's flag lieutenant, very well, as a matter of fact. I thought you did, Shoop said now. She actually looked a bit uncomfortable, but she went on steadily. The reason I ask is that, like everyone else, I suppose, Commander Chandler and I are trying to get some kind of handle on this story coming out of Mesa, I don't want to intrude on her or pressure her, but the truth is that we really need any insight she could give us about this. Gervais nodded respectfully, despite a quick flare of anger. Commander Ambrose Chandler was Kumalo's staff intelligence officer 
and like Captain Shoup, he was usually on Gervais's list of good people, and Gervais even understood exactly why they were looking for any insight they could get. The horrendous fact stories about what the Sali Newsies had dubbed the Green Pines atrocity had reached Spindle the day after the battle, less than 19 hours after Admiral O'Cleary's surrender, in fact, and he didn't envy Admiral Kumalo or Baroness Medusa, or, for that matter, Lady Goldpeak, when it came to dealing with this one's implications— none of which made him any happier about where he was pretty sure Shoup was headed. "'Yes, ma'am?' he said in as neutral a voice as he could manage. "'I don't want you to grill her, Gwen,' Shoup replied with an edge of sharpness. "'But it's obvious just from what we've heard from home that this story's already making problems, big problems, where solely public opinion is concerned.' For that matter, the local Sully Newsies are starting to ask the Governor and the Prime Minister for their reactions to Manticoran involvement in the atrocity, as if anyone out here would have a clue, even if the Star Empire had been behind something like that. She snorted in disgust. What makes them think we could know more than they do, given the communications loop, or that we'd have been briefed in on a black op like this? Assuming anyone back home could have been stupid enough to sanction it completely eludes me, but there it is. She shrugged. It was an angry, frustrated gesture, Gervais noted. On top of that, we're less than 260 light-years from Mesa, she went on. No one expects the Masons to launch some kind of retaliatory strike at us, but they're for damn straight going to play it for all it's worth in the League— and given how far they've already gone to destabilize the quadrant, there's no telling how else they might try to capitalize on it. For one thing, I think we can be pretty damn sure they're going to be flogging their version of what happened to every independent star system in hopes of keeping any more of them from siding with us or being neutral in the Star Empire's favor. It looks like the Solly Newsies are fully prepared to help them do it, too, to be honest, and we need to be able to knock that on the head. While I doubt Ensign Zilwick is in a position to shed any light on what actually happened in Green Pines, any window into what her father might have been doing, really doing, I mean, to lead Mesa to make this kind of claim, could be extraordinarily useful. I haven't discussed it with her, ma'am, Gervais said. I haven't seen her face to face since the story hit Spindle, and to be honest, it wasn't something I wanted to discuss with her over the calm. My understanding is that it's been months since she actually saw her father, though, and frankly, I doubt she'd be able to add anything much to what we already know. I understand your feelings, Gwen. Shoop's tone was a bit cooler. I'm afraid this comes under the heading of doing my job, however— in fact, there's a part of me that's inclined to invite her in to personally discuss anything she might know, think, or suspect in my office. I'm trying to avoid turning this into some sort of formal interrogation, because I don't doubt for a moment that she's even more worried, and with a lot better personal reasons, than anyone else in the quadrant. Gervais looked at her for a moment longer, then sighed mentally. It's only about 2,100 local in Thimble, ma'am, and I was planning on having a late dinner. I suppose I could see if she'd be free to join me. Ensign Helen Zilwicky followed the waiter across the mostly empty restaurant with an expression she hoped gave no sign of her inner feelings. Gwen Archer's last-minute late-notice invitation had come at a good time in many ways. Commodore Tarakoff had been keeping her busy, but there was a limit to how many hours of legitimate duty time even the most inventive flag officer could find for his aid, and, unfortunately, she'd gotten too efficient. She kept running out of things to do before she ran out of hours to sit around and think about the hideous lies about her father. At the same time, she suspected Gwen's invitation hadn't simply materialized out of thin air. Countess Goldpeak was keeping him even busier than Commodore Terakov was keeping Helen— and she doubted he had a lot of time to visit Groundside. Given his druthers, he would have been spending any time he did have with Helga Boltitz, too, which suggested someone further up the military food chain had asked him to get her take on Green Pines. 
She couldn't blame him for that, and she was grateful, if her suspicions were correct, that he'd at least picked as comfortable a venue as possible. She'd never eaten in this restaurant, and she wondered if that, too, was something Gwen had deliberately arranged. The food smelled good, and the subdued lighting projected a welcome she found soothing, despite the nature of the conversation she expected. Still, she was a little surprised when the waiter led her not toward the main dining area, but into a smaller room which contained only half a dozen tables. Only one of those tables was occupied by Lieutenant Archer and the beautiful, golden-haired Helga Boltitz, Minister of War Henry Kreitzman's personal assistant. Helen! Both of them stood as the waiter led Helen to the table, and Helga stepped around to give her a brief, tight hug. The embrace took Helen slightly by surprise. Helga wasn't usually that demonstrative in public, but she hugged the other woman back, then looked at Gervais. Gwen, she said in greeting and smiled faintly. I appreciate the invitation, even if Helga is thinking of me as a third wheel. Never, Helga said firmly. Her sharp-edged Dresdener accent gave her standard English a harsh edge, but her tone was firm and she shook her head for added emphasis. Helga, I love you. Helen replied. But you shouldn't go around telling whoppers like that one. Her smile flashed into a grin for a moment. I know how busy Gwen's been, and I don't imagine it's been any calmer in Minister Kreitzman's office. I didn't say I wouldn't like to have more time with him. I only said I'd never think of you as a third wheel. Helga pointed out. Yeah, I heard you, but you hang out with all those diplomats and politicians now. Helen observed. I think it's corrupting that Dresden directness of yours. Helga chuckled and shook her head, and Helen turned back to Gervais. But, however gracious and diplomatic our Helga's become, Gwen, I have to say I've nurtured a few suspicions about just how you happen to have time free to invite me to dinner, especially when you could have been spending that time doing something else. She let her eyes flip sideways to Helga for a moment, and both of the others chuckled. Then Gervais's expression sobered. Unfortunately, you've got a point, he said. He waved the waiter aside, pulled out her chair, and held it. And I'm not going to try to pretend this is the purely social occasion I'd prefer for it to be. Both of us really are glad to see you, though. I know. Helen allowed him to seat her, despite the difference in their ranks, then turned and accepted the menu from the waiter and gave him her initial drink order. She watched him disappear before she turned her attention back to Gervais. I know you're glad to see me, she repeated, and I'm pretty sure I know who suggested you and I have a little talk. All the same, I don't expect the conversation to do wonders for my appetite. It wasn't Admiral Goldpeak, if that's what you're thinking, Gervais replied, and she shook her head. Didn't think it was. She's a pretty direct person, and she's had the opportunity to talk to me about it herself if she wanted to. For that matter, she probably would have gone through Sir Ivar's if she was the one asking the questions. Same for Captain Lecter. Nobody on Admiral Kumalo's staff, on the other hand, really knows me or enjoys the opportunity to just slip questions into a casual conversation, which leaves us with the usual suspects, doesn't it? I guess it does. Gervais leaned back in his chair, regarding her across the table. Frankly, though, I think the reason they asked me to talk to you about it was that they figured it'd be less stressful for you, less of a formal inquisition, you might say. Helen snorted, but it made at least some sense, and she supposed she was grateful they were trying to avoid stepping on her feelings. All right, then, she said. As Duchess Harrington would say, let's be about it. She smiled tightly. What certain unnamed senior parties would like to know is whether or not I think there's any truth in the reports that my father and his lunatic terrorist cronies were responsible for detonating multiple nuclear devices, probably with the Star Empire's knowledge and direct connivance, in the town of Grain Pines. Nuclear devices which... According to the Mason authorities, killed thousands of people, 
and one of which was detonated in the middle of a crowded park on a Saturday morning, incinerating every child present, is that about the gist of it? Gervais winced internally. Helen Zilwicky had one of the sturdiest personalities he'd ever met, and that acid tone was very unlike her. More or less, he sighed. That's not exactly the way anyone put it, of course, and I don't think it's the way anyone would describe it if they were asked to. What I think they're really interested in is any insight you might give them as to why the Masons might have gone about it the way they did, claiming your father was involved, I mean. I'd think that was pretty obvious. Helen planted her forearms on the table and leaned forward over them. Daddy's been a pain in their ass ever since Manpower kidnapped me in old Chicago when I was thirteen. Trust me, you do not want my dad pissed at you. Not the way that pissed him off. And having him get together with Kathy Montaigne only made bad even worse from Mesa's perspective. Then there was that little business on Torch. You remember, the one where my sister wound up queen of a planet populated by liberated slaves every single one of whom hates Mesa and Manpower on a, you should pardon the expression, genetic level, if there is anyone in the entire galaxy whose reputation they'd like to blacken more than his, I don't know who it might be. And if you throw in the opportunity to saddle Torch with responsibility for something like this, and then claim Daddy's involvement means the Star Empire was behind it as well, it can only get even better from their viewpoint. Just look at how they're using it to undercut our credibility when we claim they've been involved in everything that's been going on out here in the quadrant. Obviously, we've invented all those nasty, untruthful allegations out of whole cloth as another prong of whatever iniquitous plot we've hatched against them. Doesn't the fact that we're enabling ballroom terrorists to nuke their civilian population prove we're only targeting them as a way to distract all right-thinking Solly's attention from our own evil imperialist agenda? The anger in her tone wasn't directed at Gervais, and he knew it. It wasn't even directed at the unnamed senior parties who'd asked him to have this conversation with her. It was, however, an indication that she was more worried and hurting worse than she wanted anyone to suspect. And it didn't do a thing to make him feel any better about dragging her into this conversation in the first place, either. I think they've already figured that part out, he said after a moment. What they're really asking about is whether or not you have any idea what really happened. What could have transpired to suggest the idea of blaming your father and the ballroom to them in the first place? You mean they're wondering what Daddy could have been doing that might have gotten him involved in whatever happened, whether he was responsible for it or not, don't you? I think that's probably a fair enough way to put it, he agreed. Well, I'm afraid I can't help you out with any specifics, she said a bit tightly. Daddy understands operational security pretty well, you know, and he's always been careful not to put me in an awkward position by telling me things a Queen's officer ought to be reporting to O&I. If he had been up to something, he wouldn't have discussed it with me, definitely not before the fact anyway. And there's no way he would have sent me any letters that said, Oh, by the way, I'm off to Mesa to Nuka City Park. Her scorn was withering. Helen, I don't think anyone thinks you've been deliberately holding back anything that could help them get a handle on this, and I'm sure everyone's fully aware your father wouldn't be sending you chatty messages about clandestine operations, whether they were his or the ballrooms or torches. They're looking for deep background, I guess you'd say. I don't have a lot of that for them either, she said in a more normal tone. Anything they don't already have available, I mean... That expose Yale Underwood did on him a while back did a pretty good job of blowing his cover and pasting a great big target on his back. Underwood did get most of his facts right, though, and I doubt I could add a lot to his history. The short version is that ever since he resigned his commission after he tangled with manpower for the first time, he's been directly involved with the ballroom. He's never made any secret of that or of the way he's been directly involved with Torch as well, 
ever since its liberation. He's more of an analyst than a direct-action specialist, and I don't doubt he's helped the ballroom plan the occasional operation. I'm not saying he's not capable of a more hands-on approach when it seems appropriate either, because he damned well is, but I think pretty much everyone realises that's not really what you might call the best and highest use of his talents. Of course, that's subject to change if you go after somebody he cares about. When that happens, he gets very hands-on. She paused, looking steadily into Gervais's and Helga's eyes across the table, then shrugged. He's pretty tight with the royals, too, since that business with Princess Ruth, although he's been a lot more focused on Torch and the Congo system since Berry got crowned queen. And he and... The hesitation was so slight that only someone who knew her as well as Gervais did would have realized she'd changed what she'd been about to say. The torches have certainly been looking for every way they could possibly hurt Mesa. Hell, Torch has declared war on them. And let's not forget what those bastards tried to do to the entire planet five months ago. So, on the surface, there's a certain plausibility to Mesa's claims. He hates manpower's guts. They've tried more than once to kill him, or me, or Barry, or Kathy, and I wouldn't be surprised if he'd managed to turn up at least some evidence manpower was about to use those state-sex stumblebums to hit Torch. Trust me, if he'd seen that coming, he would have done anything he could to prevent it. But he wouldn't have tried this way. If nothing else, he'd have known it wouldn't work. And he spent enough time with Cathy to know exactly how disastrous something like this could be politically. Not just for Torch, but for the abolitionist movement in general. Not even if he thought the attack on Torch was going to work? Helga asked quietly, and Helen looked at her. I mean, if he found out about the attack and didn't know Admiral Rosak would be able to stop it? If he figured your sister and all his friends on Torch were going to be killed? No way. Helen shook her head firmly. Daddy doesn't think that way. Oh, I'm not saying he wouldn't have made Mesa and Manpower pay big time if they'd managed to pull something like that off, but he wouldn't have done it before he knew they'd pulled it off. And he wouldn't have gone about it this way even if they'd managed to turn Torch into a cue ball. It's not the way he thinks, not the sort of thing he'd involve himself with. Grief and hatred can make someone do terrible things, Gervais pointed out gently, and Helen surprised him with a snort of laughter. You don't have to tell me that. Remember what happened to me on Old Terra, or what happened to my mom, or the way I met Barry and Lars, for that matter. But Daddy is a very guided weapon, Gwen. He's got really good target discrimination, and he's just as good at holding down the collateral damage. Besides, nuking a park, a park full of kids? She shook her head. He'd die first. Or, for that matter, kill anybody else who thought that would be a good idea. I'm not saying my daddy's a saint, because he's not. I love him, but nobody who knows him would ever claim he's an angel, or, if he is, he's one of those avenging angels with a really sooty halo anyway, and I could see him not worrying a whole lot about the tender sensibilities of a bunch of slave-trading masons. I could even see him using a nuke against some kind of hard target, the kind that wouldn't kill a stack of civilians when it disappeared in a mushroom cloud. But not this, never a park. You're sure? Gwen, I'm damn sure Daddy didn't plan and carry out this strike. I don't know where he is, and I don't know why he hasn't spoken up yet. And, yeah, I'll admit, that scares the shit out of me. He's got to know how Mesa's using Green Pines as a club to beat both the Star Empire and the ballroom, and he'd never let them go on doing it if he could do anything, like surfacing to refute their version to stop it. But it's not his style. Oh, yeah, if they'd actually managed to genocide Torch, then he might have gone after them on Mesa— he wouldn't have done it until he knew they'd gotten through to Torch, though, and he wouldn't have done it this way even then. He'd have been looking for another target, and when he was done, 
there wouldn't be any question about who'd been responsible for it. Why not? Helga asked, her tone one of fascination, despite the topic of the conversation, and Helen gave another harsher snort of laughter. Because if my daddy had gone after a target on Mesa, he wouldn't have wasted his time on grain pines. If he was in city-killing mode, he'd have gone after Mendel and their entire system government, not some lousy bedroom community. And trust me, the hole would have been a hell of a lot deeper. That was David Weber's Shadow of Freedom, Part 4. Join us next time as we continue our journey through this best-selling science fiction novel. And that's it for the podcast today. Thanks to Jim Menz, Laura Haywood Corey, Hank Davis, and composer Ruth Judkowitz, who authored March to the Stars, our rousing podcast theme. And thanks to Audible.com. Extreme Lauds and Plaudits to Chuck Gannon and to our special guest, David Drake. Please join us next time and keep reaching for the stars. 